The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Happy Monday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Hope everyone had a good weekend. Again, a happy new year as we get deeper into this month of January 2017. In this hour, joining me is somebody who used to be and uh, joining me and will uh, again, I'm sure, on Fridays as a co-host. We're going to have him on all different days, and that's Brad Bannon. Brad runs Bannon Communications Research. They're a polling, message development, and media firm. They help labor unions, progressive issues groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. He's also a contributor to The Hill in Washington, D.C., and to MyTiller.com, the social media site for politics. He's a lecturer in poli-sci at Salem State University in Salem, Mass., more than a pleasure to have back with us, Brad Bannon. Happy New Year, Brad. Good to have you with us on this Monday. Happy New Year, Leslie. Good to talk to you. Um, before we get into politics, we have, obviously have to talk about the shooting that took place a few days ago on Friday at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport. We know that in custody uh, was Esteban uh, Santiago, who was holding a military ID, and we know that more information will be coming out. Um, I want to uh, read something to you that somebody posted on my Facebook page on Friday, right after I got off the air. Um, and this is a guy named Brian, and he said, All I truly know is that a few people have been killed and more injured in a shooting, because this was written on Friday, I'm reading this on Friday, a shooting at the Fort Lauderdale Airport, and that it makes me feel sad and angry. Here is what I suspect is coming. If the shooter is white, they are mentally unstable, a lone wolf, most likely brainwashed by conservative news like Fox. If the shooter is black, they are a BLM supporter, brainwashed by liberal propaganda. If the shooter is Muslim, they are terrorists affiliated with ISIS. Gun manufacturers, supporters, organizations, etc. will state that they had absolutely nothing to do with any part of it. People will blame everything imaginable. The media will exploit that. Others will overreact due to the media exploitation. And no one will really take into account the feelings of the families and friends of the victims. Here's some truth. He, let me finish. Uh, here's some truth. And he goes on. We live in one of the largest countries in the world and have more guns than people. When people are too or feel like we are being bullied, taken advantage of, or forced into a corner, we generally will do whatever it takes to remove ourselves from that situation. Three, mental health is a serious issue in this country that is handled horribly. Four, we can attempt to lessen the amount of events such as this one through various methods, and we should, but we'll never be able to prevent all people from getting pissed and flying off the deep end. Five, whether purposeful or not, fear is a powerful tool that is very easily able to manipulate others. Of course, our prayers, thoughts, positive feelings go to the people affected by the senseless tragedy, but... Aren't we all getting tired of having to say that? The reason I read that because um, he really is onto something. And one thing that he forgot that I commented on on Friday when I got off the air and read this was Esteban Santiago is a Hispanic name. 
uh, military ID. Um, and I say that because, of course, he forgot to write. And if it's a Hispanic, well, they'll say, uh, Trump could say, well, I told you they sent us their rapist and murderers, build that wall. But the reason I point this out is I feel, and Brad, tell me if you agree or disagree, that because of the rhetoric, the division, the vitriol that comes in this country, not just from the supporters of the, the, the president-elect, but the president-elect himself when he was campaigning, um, I'm, I'm not trying to be irresponsible, and I am a pessimist, but my prediction is we're going to have more and more of these attacks, whether the person is white, military, Hispanic, Muslim, has mental illness or not, was a conservative. I mean, we also had last week that disgusting, just terrible, terrible, uh, terrible victimization of a mentally handicapped individual by four young African-Americans. Um, this is a hate crime. They're charged with that, um, a, a racist crime. Uh, race wasn't just their motivation. Uh, hate was their motivation, obviously. And the things that they said, you know, asking this person to denounce and to say uh, negative things about Donald Trump. So we definitely see that there can be very violent factions on both sides. But do you agree with me that we're going to fearfully and unfortunately perhaps see more of this in our nation in the next four years? Well, I'm sad to say you're right, Leslie. Uh, we're going to see one of these mass shootings every month or two because that's been the pattern for the last few years. Uh, and I think you're right. I think more than likely uh, these kind of unfortunate incidents are going to uh, intensify. Uh, and uh, the reality is that the 2016 ca- uh, campaign uh, raised the vitriol about race uh, to an incredibly high level. Uh, and when you have a presidential candidate like Donald Trump uh, talking about Second Amendment solutions uh, and lambasting blacks and Latinos, uh, sure, there's going to be a reaction. Uh, you, first of all, you give some incentive to the, uh, you know, the clans in the far right of the world who, you know, just looking for an excuse to go around and shoot blacks and Latinos. And, of course, uh, once that happens, once white people start shooting black people, Latinos, uh, the blacks and Latinos start shooting back. Uh, And I think Donald Trump is to blame uh, for the intensity and the growing intensity of this problem uh, because of how vitriolic his campaign was. Uh, He tried to polarize uh, racial feelings in this country, which were trying, which were coming together under Barack Obama. So I'm sad to say, but I absolutely agree with you, Leslie. Um, Before we go to politics in the um, next uh, three uh, segments uh, on the program, I want to probe this a bit more. This is not just guns. This is not just mental illness. This is, I mean, to me, um, it's not even just hatred. Somebody with mental illness may not hate. Um, This is is not just uh, terrorism, and this does not just come from one group of individuals that look a certain way, have a certain ethnicity, cultural background, or religion. How do you even begin to chip away at this uh, as a nation? And, I mean, what what can Democrats do when they don't have the White House, they don't have the majority in the House um, or the Senate? I mean, do we just 
uh, get on our knees, pray to God uh, that we don't have to kiss our ass goodbye in the next four years, Brad. I'm sorry, it sounds so doom and gloom. Well, uh, I think Democrats, uh, they can't sit idly by. You're right. Uh, they don't control the White House or either House of Congress, uh, but they can still make a lot of noise. Uh, I think the problem in the United States today is we have this polarized culture. Uh, and I'm sad to say I think the new president is doing everything he can uh, to make it even worse. Uh, and Democrats are basically the loyal opposition. No, no, and, and you know what, you know what, Brad, you know what? In case they can. I agree with you that I think this president-elect is doing everything he can to make it worse. And I know there are people out there who think I'm just bitter Hillary lost, but it goes beyond that. When the four people last week on Facebook live-streamed beating a mentally ill man, I remember a guy running for president who was elected who mocked a disabled reporter. I, and, and I say that because, you know, if, if it's acceptable to mock, then it, 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 some, in some people's minds that it might be acceptable to maim. And uh, we could talk more about that. Brad, we're going to take a break. When we come back, sweetie, we got some stuff planned we're going to chat about politically. I look forward to it. And so, Brad, get your political mask on. Uh, we'll be back after this with my buddy and co-host partner in crime, Brad Bannon, this afternoon here on the only true democracy and talk radio. Don't go away. I am Leslie Marshall. He is Brad Bannon, and that is the we in this conversation uh, today. Brad, thanks for holding. Welcome back. Um, You wrote a great uh, article uh, for The Hill as a contributor entitled Five Things Dems Must Do This Year to Win in 2016. Now, I am not going to uh, be a naysayer. I read your article before we go through your five. The first thing I have to say, Brad, is my problem is that my, my, my problem is that Democrats just don't come out in the midterms. And, and how do you get that to change? Because, heck, Democrats didn't even come out when Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was reading a uh, new election study from uh, the website 538. Uh, oh, I don't day. like them. I don't like them anymore, but go ahead. <laughs> Uh, well, they uh, made a case, and I think they had the numbers to prove it, that uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's biggest problem uh, is that uh, Latino and black voters uh, did not come out to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, now, that's a, you know, I think that's a problem. I think she can definitely contributed to that problem, uh, but that's something uh, we have to deal with, and that's something we can deal with. Uh, the problem is, you know, nothing good is going to happen for Democrats in the short term. Uh, but 
Uh, I think certainly by the 2020 election. No, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why not? Why, why not? Why can't we take some seats or, you know, create that resistance that the Tea Party did on the right and, you know, to gain a few seats? Maybe not the majority, but, you know, heck, gain a few seats. I mean, it is within reach in the Senate, isn't it? Or no, when you just look at the seats, because the way I look at it coming up in the midterms is Democrats are losing more seats than Republicans as far as people uh, retiring and stuff like that. That's right. Uh, of the, uh, I think there are 34 Senate seats uh, up in uh, 2018, and I believe uh, only nine of them the Republican seats, uh, which means uh, you have a lot of Democrats, uh, senators running for re-election, and very few Republican senators running for re-election, which will make it very, very difficult uh, for Democrats to uh, pick up the two or three seats they need uh, to run the Senate. So, uh, you know, I think we can, you know, I think we can probably pick up some House seats, uh, but it'll be very difficult to pick up the number of uh, House or Senate seats uh, to win back control. Now, my theory is that my Donald Trump, I think, is not going to be very popular in 2018. Um, you know, and the reality is he's not very popular now. Uh, Gallup did a, a study which compared the uh, poll ratings of uh, President-elect, and Trump's poll rating is president-elect is in the low 40s. Uh, when Barack Obama was president-elect in 2009, uh, his job rating was in the 60% range. Uh, even George W. Bush had a higher rating as president-elect than Donald Trump. So he starts out with a low level of support. And presidential support scores tend to go down and not up uh, during the presidency. So I think there's going to be some opportunities there. Uh, I just think the uh, the administrative stuff is going to hurt us in 2018 uh, because there are so many Democrats running for re-election to the Senate and so few Republicans. But we can do a lot of damage to Trump. Uh, we have 48 United States senators, as it is now, and we can stop some things that the Republicans want to do, uh, because all we need to do is peel off uh, three Republican senators and any vote, uh, and we can stop things cold. Uh, we also uh, can filibuster. So uh, we have lots of opportunities to stop Trump, and I certainly think that uh, the, the Chuck Schumer, the, the new major, uh, minority leader, is going to use them. Uh, but I think at the same time, we need to have a very clear idea of where we're, the party wants to lead the nation, uh, because we can easily stop things, um, but we have to start things, too, and that's a lot more difficult. Uh, no, no question about that uh, as well. So let's go through uh, your list of five one by one. How's that sound? Because okay. uh, you have a good list here, and I, I agree with you. Um, I would even add to it. Uh, one of the things as you talk about is uniting the party, and I agree. I mean, you know, you're just, you know, w with numbers, you have more power. And you say that they're lining up. Democrats have lined up in a circular firing squad since Election Day. Many Democrats blame Senator Bernie Sanders, who ran in the Democratic presidential primary, uh, Donald Trump, uh, for the for Donald Trump victory. Uh, and then, you know, you talk more and more. So uh, talk to us about uniting 
the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, you, you actually referred to something that you did at, right after the election when you posted a plea for Democrats to unite. And you said <laughs> the first response was from a Sanders supporter who wrote, F the corporate Democrats. Yeah, um, that uh, really captured the spirit. Yeah, but, but, but don't, we, don't, we ha- don't we have like a Bernie Sanders Democrat, uh, Hillary Democrat still post-election mindset in, in our uh, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and so, uh, I see on the Internet all the time uh, Clinton, Hillary Clinton supporters uh, blaming Bernie Sanders for beating up Clinton during the primaries, which led to her loss. Uh, I see all sorts of complaints um, from the Sanders people. Well, you know, uh, Hillary was a bad candidate, and if Bernie had won, uh, run, he would have beat Trump. You know, maybe that's right. But at this point, it's not productive at all. What we should be doing is not criticize the Clinton people criticizing the Sanders people, the Sanders people criticizing uh, the uh, Clinton people. We should focus our fire on Donald Trump. I mean, that's how we can make an impact. We can't make much of an impact if we're fighting each other, but if we're all on the same page in fighting Donald Trump, uh, that's a lot different. Another good example is uh, the the race for Democratic primary chair. The race uh, between Tom Perez uh, and Keith Ellison has become a surrogate war between the Clinton and Sanders wings of the party, with the Sanders people supporting Ellison, uh, the Clinton people supporting Perez. They're both well uh, well qualified candidates, and we should be focusing on their personal qualities for leadership rather than whether they're Clinton people or Sanders people. Um, we've seen this happen before historically, haven't we, Brad? Where the Democratic Party, you know, kind of got a bit high on their horse and overconfident, um, you know, got knocked off and knocked down terribly, lost the White House, the House, and the Senate, and six years later came back with a vengeance. Is it one? Can we do that again? And two, will it take six years? Uh, I don't think. I think we can do it. I just don't think it's going to take right away. It's going to be a long building process. Uh, and uh, I think overconfidence is going to be a real problem for Trump and the Republicans. Uh, they're already, you see them starting to do things uh, that are really crazy politically, and they feel, well, we got the power, we can do anything we damn well want. Well, the reaction is, when you have that kind of attitude like the Trump people do, you get yourself into trouble by overreaching. Uh, and I think that's the problem the Trump administration going to have. They're going to come up with all this crazy stuff. Uh, and well, hold that thought, Brad. We're going to take a break. Hold... We can do anything I want. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Brad, hold that thought, sweetie. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with you, and we'll hear numbers two, three, four, and 5 on your list. Don't go away. And some more. Back, I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Brad Bannon talking about an article he wrote for uh, The Hill as a contributor. Uh, Brad's article is Five Things Dems Must Do This Year to Win in 2018 in two years in the midterm election. The first, he said, is unite the Democratic Party. The second is opposite and opposite party, and that's divide the GOP. Now, there are already clear divisions in the GOP, uh, whether it comes to 
Russia. Uh, and uh, we found out on Friday that Vladimir Putin specifically ordered uh, interference in our elections to try and discredit Hillary Clinton to try and help Donald Trump. Whether that actually affected the outcome, I guess there's no really way to gauge that. But uh, when it comes to Russia, Russian influence on our elections, uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, when they're seeing how much it's going to cost to dismantle and there's no replacement plan and how many millions could be left without uh, health care and harmed by that and international trade. What do Democrats need to do to further divide the GOP, especially in those areas, Brad? Well, uh, you mentioned a very good example, Russia. Uh, there are two powerful United States senators who both sit on the Armed Service Committee, uh, John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who are very unhappy about Donald Trump's lack of response uh, to the Russian hacking. Uh, I think there are several GOP senators uh, who are very concerned about uh, Russian interference in the 2016 campaign, and they're frustrated that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be concerned at all. And that's an issue Democrats should push real hard for two reasons. One of this it's an issue it divides the uh, GOP. And I think this Russian hacking thing could turn out to be Donald Trump's e- uh, email scandal. I think unless Trump deals with it, it's just going to go on and on and on, uh, like the controversy over Hillary's email. So I think this is a prime example of how Democrats can push with their divisions in the Republican ranks. Okay, let's talk about um, this further. Uh, with uh, the division of the GOP, uh, they can't just sit back and expect the GOP to divide themselves. Um, you say that in your piece that strong opposition to Republican initiatives then gives the Democrats the opportunity to block the bad policy. So we're kind of seeing this, and that's what the president said with regard to Obamacare, which is make sure the Republicans own this, own what they're about to do, correct? Yeah, and, you know, health care is another good example. Uh, the Republicans are very strongly committed to the idea of, of uh, repealing uh, uh, Obamacare, but they have no clue and no consensus on what they're going to do to replace it. Uh, some Republicans, like the free Republicans in the Freedom Caucus in the House, basically want just to repeal Obamacare and leave it at that. There are other Republicans who think the re- rep- uh, that the party needs to come up with an actual replacement for it. But the reality is the Republicans can't agree on a fix, and that's going to be an issue that we should really push hard because, again, uh, Republicans are really divided on the response. Uh, Very true. Let's go on to the next one, and that is remember that it's still the economy, stupid. So true. Exit polls show economy was the reason the majority of people voted for Donald Trump, uh, hoping that this businessman would do what he said he was going to do, which was bring jobs back to America and bring more money uh, to America. But one of the problems, Brad, is the economy is doing well, much better than when President Obama took office. But a lot of Americans either don't know that, don't believe it, or don't feel it, and isn't feeling uh, uh, you know, part of the believing, part of the reality, there, or, or the per- isn't the perception, uh, n- you know, by Americans not necessarily what the reality is with regard to the economy. Well, yeah, I think it's a combination of all those things. And remember, it's the economy, I very strongly believe, uh, that cost uh, the, the Rust Belt, uh, Michigan, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, that cost Hillary an electoral vote majority. And if you look at those states, especially in the exit polls, very few people in any of those Rust Belt states think the economy 
economy is in good shape. Uh, and I think a lot of voters resented the fact that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were always talking about how much better the economy was. And they looked at the economy in Ohio, wherever, and said, these people must be talking about a different planet, one that I'm not going on. And the reality is the, the economy is still in the tank in the Rust Belt. And I think part of the problem was Hillary Clinton had a very mixed message. She would talk about, well, we've made a lot of progress under Barack Obama, uh, but we still have to do a lot more. A simple message was, should have been, we should do a lot more. Uh, and the other problem that I think hurt Hillary, and it's pretty clear from the exit polls in the Rust Belt states, is that her uh, ambig- ambivalent position towards uh, the uh, Pacific uh, the trade partnership and other international trade agreements really cost her in the Rust Belt. Uh, something like 70% of the voters in the Rust Belt um, who uh, thought that international trade is a bad idea voted for Trump. And I just think Hillary Clinton, having changed her position and not having a strong commitment uh, to killing international trade deals like Trump did, uh, really cost herself the Rust Belt, and that would have given her electoral vote she needs to win. You know, it's interesting that you say that, because one of the things that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders had was consistency. Well, Donald Trump, not on some issues, he flip-flopped a bit, but for the most part, not backing down on the message they were putting forth. In other words, she was trying to be all things to all people. And Bernie and Donald Trump were like, no, like Bernie Trump, was, Bernie Trump, Bernie Sanders was like, I'm a socialist and moved on. <laughs> most people would be too afraid to say. So I think Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders said a lot of things that most politicians would be afraid to say for fear of losing. And, and, it, and it helped both of them to win in certain respects. Obviously, Donald Trump, the presidency. Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's very true. Uh, Donald Trump, there was no ambivalence. I think international trade agreements like the Pacific uh, Trade Partnership are bad for America. That was clear and unambivalent. And you're right, Bernie Sanders said the same thing. Well, I don't think you know. Yeah, but, but, but how, wait, wait, Brad, Brad. How does Hillary get around the fact that she did support it? And then she came out and she goes, and I don't anymore. I kind of think she had to support it because when, you're, when your boss does and your secretary of state, what are you going to do, stand up and go up against him? Well, uh, I think the thing that killed her is the fact that she had two different positions on it. Uh, you know, people... But that's what I'm saying. How do you get out of that? I mean, you know, look, if I ran for president someday, I'm sure there's going to be something that comes up from my past, and I never would, but I'm just saying that would, would haunt me. You can't... I mean, look, Mitt Romney did a, you know, a Mark hates it when I say a 360, but I will uh, on abortion, you know, on being pro-choice or pro-life. Why couldn't Hillary Clinton do a 360 on TPP? Because obviously that that hurt her. Well, you're you're right. She should have done that. That would have been a great. No, but I think she did. I think she did. She said, I what I you know what I was for it and to that she had some independence from the Obama administration. Oh, you're saying back then, especially because she knew she was going to run for president. Interesting, interesting. Then again, maybe at the time, the way it was presented to her, and she hadn't, you know, read everything in it, so to speak, uh, you know, maybe she thought it was a good idea. Like, like I like that she stood up and said, yes, I voted to, to, to go to war in Iraq, and she explained why, and she didn't back down on that. And I thought that, that was a good thing, even though I didn't agree with it. I agree, and she, but she did back down on trade, and uh, I on trade. that cost her. Okay, speaking of, let's go to number four on your list. Stop the name-calling. Okay, um, the other day, uh, 
the other day, Donald Trump called Chuck Schumer after he said, make America sick again, a clown. And to his credit, Senator Schumer did not name call back. He even said it's not a time to be name calling. And it really looked like he was an adult and our president elect was a child. Talk to us about stop the name calling. Who needs to stop toward whom and and why is this uh, essential? Well, I think here, Donald Trump is still clearly in the name-calling business. Instead of uniting the people of America, he's calling Chuck Schumer a clown and all sorts of other people other nasty things. Uh, And I would argue that if we're going to be successful, Democrats have to stop uh, labeling people. we need, if we're going to win a presidential race, we need to win back those four Rust Belt states. And to do that, we can't running, go running around uh, talking about Trump supporters as being deplorables or racist or whatever. Now, the reality is some of the white voters who voted for Trump in the uh, Rust Belt are racist, but not <laughs> most of them. And if we're calling these people racist, we're never going to win them back. Uh, we need to... St- they, we need to deal with the economic issue. A lot of people, the white people, the whites without college education, voted for Donald Trump because they thought the har- economy was horrible and they didn't have a chance to get ahead. And that's why most of them voted for Trump, not because he was a racist. And we have to recognize that and stop calling uh, Trump supporters racist and deplorables. Uh, what's that old expression? Do you think to, do you think calling people deplorables hurt her? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? So absolutely I, I, did, I didn't, did. but I trust uh, she your She essentially labeled a group of people, and sadly those people turned out to be the key voters in the Rust Belt defeats. And, and, all, and also, um, with regard to name-calling, I wanted to point out, though, Brad, that although I agree with what you're saying regarding name-calling, and I, I do believe when they go low, we go high, she lost going high. He won going low with the name-calling. We'll talk about that when we come back, and your last on your list and some other items. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Brad Bannon. More to come right here on the only True Democracy in Talk Radio. is with me here. I'm Leslie Marshall. Brad, before the break, I mentioned regarding the name calling. Then we're going to take uh, some calls and then go to your number five on the list and wrap it up with some other political chat. Uh, But with regard to name calling, name calling actually worked for Trump. I thought Trump was done uh, after the comment about rapists and murderers uh, with regard to Mexicans. He did not say illegals. I thought he was further done when he mocked the disabled and certainly grabbed her vagina. Um, But, you know, so uh, name, name calling worked for him, acting like a child, uh, a bully, uh, worked for him. Well, it clearly worked for Donald Trump, but it clearly didn't work for Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's not Donald Trump. She was presenting herself as a serious candidate uh, to uh, be president of the United States. And lost, and lost going she, high, and lost going high, and he won going low. Well, uh, you know, again, we're talking about a small group of people in four states that it could have turned this election completely uh, to Hillary Clinton. 
and those people in the Rust Belt did not like being called deplorable just because they were concerned about making their monthly mortgage payments every month and feeding their kids. And I think it did cost her in the Rust Belt, and the Rust Belt was the ball game. Um, okay, let's take uh, some calls. Eight 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 six Leslie eight 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 six five three seven five four three is the number. Reggie's on line three in Decatur, Georgia. Uh, Reggie, uh, good afternoon. What's your comment? Well, uh, happy Monday to you, for starters. And two, uh, I think that we should get rid of the GOP by voting them out of Congress, and you know have a united front up against them and President-elect Trump. And get the voters that we didn't get last time. So that's how the Democrats could win back the White House and the Congress and fight for the people, for the American people, not for the uh, rich or the politicians. You know? Okay. Uh, uh, I, I hear you. Brad, do you want to comment on that? Reggie, thank you for the call. Brad? Well, yeah, we've got to win these people back. And, you know, that's another argument that's going on within the Democratic Party now. To me, Hillary Clinton had two problems. One is she didn't mobilize turnout among blacks and Latinos. For instance, in Ohio, uh, black and Latino turnout was lower uh, than it was in uh, 2012. Uh, So one problem is she didn't galvanize support from traditional Democrats like uh, blacks and Latinos, and she also did horribly among, you know, essentially low-status white voters. And this is not a question of race. We need to do more for minorities. We need to do more uh, for disadvantaged white people. We need to do both. And it's not a question of whether we should target blacks or poor whites. We need both of them to win. And uh, we have to look at uh, how we can galvanize turnout next time among non-white voters and how we can win over, uh, you know, low-status white voters in, in Rust Belt. We need to do both to be successful. Lastly, you said in your list of five, pick your battles. Talk to us specifically about what you mean, Brad. Well, uh If you look at the Trump cabinet, um, I could make a good case that none of them should be uh, ratified by the Senate. I think as a a group, they're a bunch of idiots. However, we are going to be really tough to stop any of the Trump nominees. And my guess is we'll be lucky if we can stop one, because they do have a 52-48 majority in the Senate. So my advice was we need to pick our targets in terms of who we, which of the cabinet nominees we go after. And my nomination is the Secretary of Treasury, uh, Stephen uh, Munchkin. I don't remember exactly how to pronounce his last name, but this guy ran a bank in California, and he was called the Foreclosure King. This bank, One West, got a almost a billion dollars from the federal government in bailout funds, but despite that, uh, he foreclosed on 36,000 Californians who lost their homes. And that's exactly the point we have to make about Trump, that he's not for the little guy like he talked about in the campaign. He's got a cabinet full of Goldman Sachs people, and believe me, they do not care what working families in Ohio think. Uh, yeah, no question about that. Let's move on to some other uh, political issues and topics that you and I had talked about uh, covering. And uh, let's go to that wall. You know what? Uh, Ellen Ratner from Talk Media News 
asked a bunch of people in the media on radio and TV like myself to give one, two, or three predictions. And my first prediction for 2017 was that the wall won't be built and Mexico won't be paying for it. Trump is not asking Mexico to pay for the border wall. He's asking Congress in his tweets he's trying to not just backpedal uh, but lie, saying, well, of course we're going to pay for it. They're going to pay us back. Uh, former president of Mexico, I think, is more cojones uh, than the current president of Mexico, Vincente Fox, was like, you know, we're not going to pay for your racist wall, you moron. <laughs> I just love that guy. Um, but Trump is not. Uh, he's asking Congress uh, to pay, the American people, not Mexico, to pay for the border wall. With so many um, renigs so early on of campaign promises, is that going to be helpful to Democrats in the midterms or are the midterms too far away for those who supported Trump? to remember what he had said and the fact that he's broken so many promises already. Well, it's uh, that's up to Democrats to remind voters that he's breaking his campaign promises. He's breaking his campaign promises to get Mexico to pay for a wall because he's going to ask Congress to pay for it, which means you and I and all your listeners are going to be paying for the wall uh, on the Mexican border, whether we like it or not. And I agree with you. I don't think it's ever going to get built uh, because I don't think Congress is in the mood, uh, even Republicans are in the mood, to building a wall um, across the Mexican border when we could use it to repair bridges and highways in the United States. Well, yeah, this is an example. I don't think that, you know, the way Donald Trump runs his finances, you know, like hiding money everywhere, (laughs) you know, and not paying taxes is not going to be possible. I mean, the way he operates his checkbook is not the way that you can operate uh, the checkbook um, of the United States of America. Is that wall going to be built? Will Congress pay to build it? Because there are some um, who see not only the expense, but also... You know, even Rick Perry, who's going to be a part of this administration, who was governor of Texas, said it doesn't matter if you build the wall, go over it, they'll go under it, they'll go around it. Do you know that the drug cartels have tunnels so far underground that they go through all of Mexico into the United States? And some of these are just being discovered now. Yeah, I remember Rick Perry saying during the 2012 campaign when he was debating Mitt Romney and criticizing Romney's uh, desire to build a wall, that if you build a 10-foot wall, they're just going to bring an 11-foot ladder. And, you know, that's very true. And again, I think this is going to be a proposal that's going to have a tough time passing the Senate, uh, because I think there are a few Republicans who think the wall is a ridiculous idea, uh, and most Democrats do. And, you know, that's a good example of something we can start, uh, because I think uh, members of Congress, even some Republicans, think, Jesus, why don't we fix I-80 that runs through the middle of my district or that bridge or whatever? Uh, so I think that's going to be a tough one. I think he's going to have a tough time getting the money out of Congress. And he made it worse himself by promising that Mexico was going to pay for it, even though it's clear Mexico's not going to pay for it. Okay. Thank you, Brad. I agree. Uh, by the way, for Brad... Go to his website, BannonCR.com. On Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Brad.Bannon1. And on Twitter, follow him there at Brad Bannon. I'm Leslie Marshall. You can follow me on Twitter at Leslie Marshall. Hey, check out my pictures on Instagram at Leslie Marshall Talker. And have a wonderful rest of the day. We'll be back tomorrow, Tuesday, right here. Monthly Health Insurance. 
Monthly mortgage payment. Cost of groceries for the week. Prices getting obscene? The Leslie Marshall Show is free. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie, 